G'day mate, Forty here. So, I was just thinking about the last few decades, the, the most transgressive thing that you can do in public life is to deny the Holocaust. Now, it's like the most transgressive thing uh, you can do these days is to speak positively about Vladimir Putin. So, I haven't talked to my friend Duvid for a long time. Uh, Duvid, uh, the world's changed since we spoke last. Uh, we now have a war in the middle of Europe. Uh, with with Russia invading Ukraine, do you have any thoughts about what's happening in Europe? Yeah, yeah, I've been found that pretty intensely. Um, just to mention quickly, I I got a new uh, MacBook, so my my old computer was having overheating problems, and uh, I I still use it for my eBay business, but I I, I uh, my eBay has been going pretty good, so I got the new MacBook uh, Pro. And, uh, you know, so hopefully even without your microphone and camera, I got uh, pretty good sound quality also. Yes. Yeah, you sound great. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, pre- it's pretty intense. There's I- a lot to it. Uh, you're just seeing the level of ignorance, you know, like disinformation. I've mentioned many times that, you know, just the nature of cognitive dissonance, people are more likely to double down than to change. Uh, I personally, I think that's natural. So, like, even if you could demonstrate, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, 12-step programs, uh, dangers of e-personality, even if you could clearly demonstrate to somebody what they're doing is hurting themselves, it's wrong. Um, Changing is extremely difficult. And so the most likely thing for a person to do is double down. And I think that you're seeing that with Ukraine and uh, the narratives are just, uh, you know, just unbelievable now. The you know people are just, instead of just saying like this is complicated, um, I don't really know what's going on. There's a lot of information. Uh, you know people are just kind of doubling down, and, and I guess uh, you know, like we I think we talked about that related to Judaism surrender, and like you know to be a good you have to surrender to Hashem, and just you know things are not in in, in my control, and that's probably a pretty difficult thing to do. So uh, the lack of information, just not knowing what's going on specifically in war, that. Uh, you know, people who don't have a theological or religious uh, background to like surrender or to just uh, let things go beyond them, uh, you are probably in danger, you know, that they're just doubling down on narratives that are like obviously not true and all over the place, you know, so that, but uh, yeah, I'm happy to talk about this in any respect. And, and why do you think people are getting wrong? Well, there's all sorts of stuff that, uh, um, Meaning, uh, I guess, uh, you know, I mentioned with like Charles Moskowitz, uh, yeah, I'm still streaming with him actually, but, uh, you know, the conversation with Steven Pinker and Jonathan Haidt is uh, when you add in uh, morality, good and bad, like the IQ of the conversation instantly goes down at least 10 points. So the main thing that people get wrong is probably something that's worthless in the first place and that's their perception of who's a good guy and who's a bad guy so if you ask like what what you know the one thing that people know uh you know certainly in the west you know it's going to be okay putin's a good guy Zelensky, uh, putin's a bad guy Zelensky's a good guy and, and you know to other people it could be the opposite uh but but i think it's these uh you know misconceptions of our ability to judge who's good and bad and then to try to decipher what's going on based on our uh you know, sort of say axiom of who we're claiming is the good guy and the bad guy. 
So to understand what's going on, you really have to withhold judgment or even to say like, I have no idea who's good or bad. God will be the judge good or bad. I'm just trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, but I think most people start with their perception of who's good and who's the good guys and the bad guys, and then we'll filter the information uh, through that. And I think most people aren't even capable, like Charles Moscow that kept on trying to explain to him like a year now, and he still has a hard time like saying like, I'm on the side of Israel. I just not so sure that the narrative that I'm being fed is accurate. So like, I'm not about to jump ship and like, uh, you know, get off the side of Jews or Israel. Uh, but like, honestly, I question the narrative. I question like, you know, our belief system, what we're being told um, without like having, you know, without questioning whether I'm going to change allegiance or switch sides. And how would you describe the dominant narrative with regard to the war in Ukraine? Um, well, from the media, you, you know, it's, it's, it's still this narrative that Trump was bad and it's probably connected. Like, I don't know the conspiracy theory well enough, um, but, but uh, you know, that Trump was so bad that everything had to be done to get rid of him. And, uh, you know, so this narrative is still dominant and the dominance of that narrative has switched into you know, Ukraine and Zelensky is the good guy and Putin is uh, the bad guy. And, uh, you know, to the point where we're censoring each other and we, we're not even looking into a uh, reasonable looking uh, at the information, like what's actually going on. It's interesting in this, you know, increasingly secular relativist world, the universality of the condemnation of Russia and Putin. I had no idea that the West could become so united on something. There, There's one dominant narrative for how to view this war, and that is Putin is evil. Russia's in the wrong, Ukraine are, are plucky underdogs who deserve all of our support. And I'm just I'm just shocked at how united the West is, whether it's in Australia or England or France or Germany or Canada or the United States. Everyone shares the same hatred for Putin, disgust with what Russia's doing, and love and support for Ukraine. It's it's surprising that we could be this united. Well, I'm not sure that we're actually this, you know, it's manufactured. So saying the, the elites or the people controlling information, um, you are, 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 are just giving the narrative. So the people who make up our own minds, research it for, for ourselves, are going to do that. And uh, you, if it's saying the system's united, and it's probably because of, uh, because of the interest, uh, the, you know, the interests of the elites are almost uh, unanimously aligned with Ukraine and against Russia uh, and, and what, what the actual populace believes or the, you know, based on the information uh, that we know. But, but I would assume that uh, presumably the interest of the elites is in fact, uh, at least in you know, uh, uh, Western Europe, America is, is basically almost completely aligned with uh, Ukraine and against Russia. And that's why uh, you know, it's, it's coming at this way versus on an individual level, like people are contrarian, uh, you know, so like JF and uh, uh, Nicholas Fuentes and others are, are you know, contrarian. So they're backing, uh, you know, Russia, but, uh, you know, as a Westerner, as, you know, if you have money in the stock market or the global supply chain, uh, your various interests that, uh, that we're probably, uh, you know, completely embedded uh, with uh, whatever our elites have decided to do in Ukraine. 
And what sort of conversations have you had about the Ukraine war, whether online or in real life? Almost none. You know, like I, I, I was on Ralph, this guy, Right Reaction, in uh, UK and uh, um, Germany, who uh, kind of does what you do. Have, have you came across Ralph uh, and Right Reaction House of Comments yet? Uh, no. Um, he's like a half Indian, half uh, British, maybe some Jewish blood, and he follows the dissident right. In uh, but but he's based in Europe, and he and he kind of plays like you used to do. He plays videos, and uh, comments on videos, and I mean he's kind of like pro-Jewish but anti-globalist. So uh, he has like you know some sort of probably somewhat similar to Charles Moskowitz uh, theology that he thinks there's these nefarious globalist actors, uh, but but uh, that's not the Jews that the nefarious uh, globalist actors uh, doesn't really have anything to do uh, with Judaism as opposed to, you know, most of the people on the distant who have these conspiracy theories probably connect globalists or, or globalist nefarious actors uh, with Judaism. But but uh, he's been taking a pro-Putin stance and he's been streaming. He's got his, uh, you know, things of dissonance. So I, I, I talked with them but uh, on his channel a few times, but, but it's kind of, big panels and trolls and just people yelling at each other and people just keep on repeating themselves into huge panels. Uh, Church of Entropy, we've basically avoided talking about it. Um, although I, I follow, I've, I found some interesting web pages. If you want, I could uh, Twitter to you. Yeah, uh, just DM them. If... I mean, of uh, like, uh, it's actually based in Asia and, and it, uh, it has a really uh, awesome, um, you like a play-by-play -play, uh, blow of what's happening. It's called the defense. I'm sorry, I'm typing it up. A defense. Um, I apologize. Uh, I mean, political opponent arrested Asia. and his assets so seized it, by it the has state. Like these maps and, and, uh, and it's based out of Asia. And, he, and, and uh, he's kind of saying that what, you know, what, uh, you know, just the information to show what's going on, on in the, on the battlefront. And uh, and he has you know these maps and he has the little icons going for each little aspect of uh, the army. So like an analysis of what's actually happening on the battlefield, what's actually happening on international diplomacy, and certainly from Israel, like uh, you know from what what is Israel's interest? Why is Israel remaining neutral? Uh, what is the role of Israel with all of uh, you know the Russians and Ukrainians in 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 uh, in Israel? So. Uh, you know, we get kind of this straw man where, where I, I hate it. Like, it, like to me, it's just like dumb. It lowers the IQ like 20 points is just to uh, assume intentions. So like usually I, I work with the assumption that you could really never know a person's intention. It says in the Talmud, there's, uh, you know, six things I think that you could never know. One of them is what's truly on a person's heart. Uh, but even like our best uh, publications, the New York Times, uh, all start with this basic assumption that we really know what Putin's trying to do. And like, you know, he's trying to recreate the uh, Russian empire or, 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 or just like he's upset of his decreased status. And we're supposed to assume that uh, that's the motive behind, even though that's not exactly, that's not at all what he said. So I was actually watching the Russian TV when it was still available. Um, you know, ironically, I started watching Kevin Michael Grace. Uh, I, I, I really never watched him, even when he was on your program. I liked like the the movie or some of his stuff, uh, but uh, 
I didn't watch him much even when he was on your program. Uh, and I, I didn't watch him really at all until like last week. I wanted some sort of like stable, rational voice on what was happening. So I started tuning into Kevin Michael Grace again for his analysis. I'm not sure if you've... Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't uh, listened to him. Do you, do you remember the main points that he's he's given? Um, well, I mean, he's kind of just saying that everyone's in fantasy and everyone went crazy. And, uh, you know, I, I guess like me, he's not surprised like, because, you know, if you just work with the assumption that that it's likely for people to double down. And so even when people's, uh, you know, I, I guess, they expect, you know, people start believing their own propaganda so if you're just you know spewing things to make yourself look better, and we've talked about that, like I said, hypocrisy is not uh, necessarily a, a high crime in Judaism. So to portray yourself better than you actually are, um, you know, could even be a positive thing, could be encouraged. Uh, but when you start actually believing the propaganda, um, so it's not surprising that people, uh, you know, bl believe the propaganda. Oh, I, Kevin Michael Grace had a eye patch on for like a month and yeah. he, said he, tri he tripped on his doc martin that oh. just like doc martin shoelace and he tripped on it and uh it uh you know had a nasty bruise and he, he had a eye patch for like a few weeks and he just took it off in the last few days but uh you know he's reading all sorts of uh, like he did on your show he reads all sorts of news articles and covers it pretty good and has kind of a ironic uh you know take on just people's motivations or craziness that that allows people to uh you know i guess believe their own propaganda and and so tell me more how are you trying to figure out what's going on in ukraine so there's this website in asia there's kevin michael grace's show how else are you trying to figure out what's really going on i started watching uh dw the the german english news i was watching uh the russian news I read the Israeli papers. I, I, I read basically uh, Haoritz, Times of Israel, Jerusalem Post every day. Um, I have through my mother a subscription to the New York Times. Um, I've been checking the UNS report. Like, like God forbid, I saw that uh, you probably can't play, but Andrew England uh, on UNS, he had this like collection of uh, horrible stuff that Ukrainians are doing to uh, uh, defectors or, or people like stealing bread. Uh, but but I've, I've been reading the UNS report um so i've been i've been reading uh you know quite a bit and, and then I, I checked a few military channels i'll give you another one called uh um task uh task and purpose and it's ba basically basically a channel that uh does like guns and, and like uh military stuff but uh is also similar like maps and just like battle line of what's going on so i've been looking for alternative sources i found alternative sources uh but, but i read the new york times basically all the articles on ukraine every day and uh you know i'll check also uh the mainstream papers like the atlantic the new yorker uh in my detroit papers uh but, but i find the times of israel has a pretty good reporting also so uh um you know if you check the times of israel uh i i you know that that has probably some of the best reporting on it and then, you know, occasional UNS report for some like uh, dissonant, uh, maybe uh, Russian perspective and uh, you know, different news like Australian news, uh, Chinese news. Um, but uh, specifically, I think I watch a lot of uh, German news, which is obviously pro-Ukrainian.
And so what do you think is really happening there in Ukraine? Um, it's unclear of you know how bad were the Ukrainians treating the Russians? Did, how how good of a claim is Russia? I was also on the chess server, so I noticed that uh, uh, it seemed that uh, you know, like I, I've been playing a lot of chess, and and it's hit the chess community where they've banned Russian chess players, uh, you know, even at the highest levels, and and uh, like a, like a real boycott of uh, Russian chess players that hasn't happened before. But also some uh, you know blogs and even like some Google Translate uh, conversations with Russian chess players, uh, but the the Russians seem pretty convinced not just like it's Putin and, and like it's one man, but there's some universal understanding uh, that Ukraine was doing some pretty bad stuff to Russians in the you know the Donbass uh, uh, breakaway regions, and uh, it had to be stopped. Uh, you know whether it's possible. Um, you know, like as a conspiracy theorist, what, what was, you know, like, and, and I'm, you know, God forbid, like, you know, you're like, I don't have anything besides my U.S. citizenship, uh, but uh, I'm pretty skeptical of our own government. Like, were we, uh, you know, using labs? Like, how, how bad of, uh, you know, what were, was what our elites were trying to do in Ukraine? Um, you know, is Ukraine a failed state? And all, all these various factors. Uh, but it, it would appear that uh, there was some pretty bad stuff happening to Russians, Along the border, uh, there was, uh, and and Russia decided that they had to uh, invade, at least to uh, you you take over, protect the Russians in that area, and then maybe once they saw the the pushback from uh, you know the West from America and Europe, they decided that they had to completely demilitarize um, Ukraine in totality. Because I take a, a rather emotionless, rational approach to Israel-Palestine, I think it, it is pretty similar to Israel-Palestine, at least militarily in any way, in many ways, in terms of military operation that you know, like when Israel tries to uh, go into Gaza and demilitarize Gaza, which I, I guess maybe hasn't happened for like a decade, the last uh, war two years ago, um, they decided not to do it, even though there was a lot of pressure, uh, but you know, some sort of complete campaign to demilitarize at least uh, eastern Ukraine. And uh, so it looks like, you know, if you look at those web, those web pages that have a, a play-by-play, and God forbid, it looks like World War II. You know, like, I, I mean, I don't know how much you've studied besides the Holocaust, um, but, like, I think I'm, like, I'm descended from Ukrainian Jews, and I think it was probably pretty normal, like, every, once every generation, sometimes more than once a generation, the army would roll through, there would be programs, and, and you would really, really have to pick up and flee and uh, move away, and you risked uh, losing your home. And, uh, you, you know, so, so to some extent, this is uh, similar to things that have happened in, the, in you know, the Ukraine in the past in military campaigns, where they're literally going through town by town and uh, changing the rulership from Ukrainian to Russian. They're, you know, knocking out all of uh, the military, all the people who have serious weapons or embedded with uh, the Ukrainian army and, uh, you know, like literally going town by town. And if they don't surrender or if they fight, you know, bombing and uh, and then, you know, blocking off roads. And uh, it, it's really probably a disaster in, in terms of, uh, you know, how bad it could be. I saw on uh, 
this guy Shlomi Ziancy. I'm actually friends with him on Facebook, a Hasidic uh, travelogger, one of the more popular ones, was traveling to the border. And some of the refugees there were estimating that it'd be probably two years till they would go, be able to go back to Eastern Europe. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if they're, you know, a lot of those people will permanently lose their house because, uh, you know, God forbid, um, who knows what the new government's going to be if Russian takes over, how they're going to, you know, give property back to the previous owners or the Ukrainians if the people that fled and didn't fight um, are are going to be so happy to uh, give the property back to people that fled. So I would assume that a lot of the people that have uh, fled are, are not going to be able to go back. And I, ironically, I've been following in Israel also. So, uh, you know, I don't think most Ukrainian Jews actually want to go to Israel. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're, even though they fling, they're probably going to Europe and America. And so ironically, like 80% plus of the refugees from Ukraine that have ended up in Israel are uh, non-Jews. Uh, you know, so there's a lot a lot to this. I wouldn't be surprised if it's, uh, you know, from, from like the web page I showed you from like the military perspective that if uh, Russia wants to go to, I guess, the, the Danpro River, which is uh, like a dividing line or even further, uh, and they want to demilitarize it uh, town by town, that uh, you're looking at a few months of this. And so if the West keeps on sending weapons, it could escalate. If the West doesn't send weapons, um, I think they're saying in about two weeks, uh, you know, the Ukrainian forces are, are basically going to be starved out from siege tactics. And uh, we might start seeing surrendering. We might start seeing Ukrainians surrender. So it's very hard to know what's true or what's not, what's the state of what's going on. Uh, you know, all the reporting of how well Ukraine's doing or how popular Zelensky is. Um, and, uh, you know, from my perspective, I thought Zelensky, you know, was, uh, you know, incompetent, like a madman. Like, uh, they're not allowing men to flee. Uh, people 20 to 60 are being forced to fight. Uh, you know, we just saw these things on the UNS report, if they're accurate, they're literally like tying people to trees and whipping them for refusing to fight. And, uh, you know, so like the news media portraying the Ukraine is holding back Russia or being good guys. Um, I'm pretty uncertain, you know, just like uh, so uh, I'm, I'm not sure your perspective, if you think you could uh, kind of dig through the information wars to find out some sort of, uh, you know, greater truth or if that even uh, you know, matters, if you just accept that we're not. And, and then to think back to World War Two and the Holocaust or, or other parts of history to think like how hard it is to actually know what's going on. Yeah, I don't really have any strong uh, perspective yet on the war in Ukraine. But one thing I, I was thinking about this evening, which is what led me to stream, I, I don't stream that much anymore. I was just thinking about how loving Putin is, is the new Holocaust denial. It used to be that the single most shocking uh, socially uh, out there thing you could ever do was deny the Holocaust. And so you had people in, among the white nationalists and the alt-right who would kind of signal how serious and committed they were to the cause by denying the Holocaust, because you deny the Holocaust, you absolutely burn all bridges to polite society. And so that then shows how, how devoted you are to the cause. And now these, these same people on the distant right who would mock the Holocaust, deny the Holocaust, or minimize the Holocaust, they're now wanting to tell people how much they love Vladimir Putin, because coming out with statements of support in favor of Putin right now, it's pretty much socially uh, the kiss of death. It's pretty much the same socially as de denying the Holocaust. It's, it's the most shocking thing you can do 
because there seems to be universal support for Ukraine and you know universal condemnation of Russia. So also given that Russia has had nuclear weapons, thousands of nuclear weapons aimed at our country for 70 years, just as we've had them aimed at Russia, uh, Russia is very clearly the enemy for for the United States, along with China. But uh, Russia has been the enemy for approximately 70 years. So to come out with statements supporting the, the leader of the enemy is just going to shock people and alienate you from other people. So I, I hear the comments from friends who try to add some nuance to the conversation and they just get shot down in social media or in real life. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, well, I saw, you know, the one place Zelensky has not proved to be that popular is in Israel. And we could talk about that. And I, I tried to find, I couldn't detail if uh, Zelensky had actually converted to Christianity. Uh, it looks like he married a non-Jew. And, uh, and then I even saw some people say that he had actually converted to Christianity. And it was possible that that's why he's so popular, that like, you know, like uh, the only Jew that could be a mass hero to the non-Jews would be one who had converted to uh, Christianity, but I couldn't verify that. And in Israel, they they uh, they even were putting almost the opposite, where they were claiming that uh, Zelensky's speech comparing what's happening in Ukraine to the Holocaust was like Holocaust uh, denial. But I think it's much different and worse because, like, generally, um, the Holocaust is a very minor topic. Like, you know, for Jews, like, obviously, it's a big topic for us, and even among Jews. Uh, your average Jew, it's, uh, you know, only uh, a, a topic of minor concern, like Holocaust Memorial Day or, or Tish above. Um, that, uh, I mean, it's, it's definitely looms large on, on, on Jews, but uh, you know, as opposed to the current, you know, Ukraine war is, uh, you know, the biggest news story for a month and it'll probably continue to be that demands much more of an opinion and it's current. So, you know, just like what you think about a war 70 years ago, or a narrative of who's the good guys or the bad guys about what actually happened. Most people probably didn't don't think about, but like everyone's got to form an opinion on uh, on the Ukraine. So the likelihood of uh, you know what type of person you know, like maybe in the alt right circles or the people that we've talked to, Holocaust denial is a big thing. And even that, it's not that big. There's really only a handful of scholars that have really researched it and uh, know something uh, about it. And, uh, you know, maybe like Mike Enoch and Eric Stryker, uh, you, you know, some like serious neo-Nazis. Uh, but even in, among the alt-right, Holocaust denial was uh, pretty minimal. Uh, but, but I would say, yeah, it's like that, where if, you, if you're pro-Putin, at least uh, here in the West, uh, like on the chess server, on Facebook, Twitter, like you're gone instantly. And, uh, um, you know, so I, I would say that's... Uh, I mean, it's like Holocaust denial, but it's that. You know, but but Holocaust denial is relatively a niche issue that most people, uh, you know, don't talk about. You know, besides for me and you that have an interest in it, as opposed to this, you know, it's it's on the front page of every paper. And to have people, uh, you know, not having opinions or even to, a current event for someone to question, uh, you know, like the war, but, you know, like uh, the Iraq war. One of these, uh, I think it's even stronger, uh, like. Uh, when we, when you know after 9/11 i think it was easier to be i don't think people were really on the side of isis god forbid like people would have but but i mean to say that uh, i'm not so sure that uh, like i think it's our own actions that caused the muslims to attack us uh, i don't think it's a good idea to 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 do that um it seems actually stronger now 
than than it was then under President Bush, ironically. And so what sort of game do you think Israel is playing here? They they don't seem to be taking any strong uh, stand, unlike the, the rest of the, the Western world. So what do you think is going on with uh, Israel? Um, well, I think you know, the narrative that we tell Jews in America or, or tell Americans is largely just that a narrative. Like factually, you know, like, I mean, people get upset, like, you know, like, half Galician or whatever, or Charles Moskowitz always get upset when I say, well, Israel's basically a military state. All senior Israeli military people are, are really, are, are killers, are people that literally have kills, uh, that have uh, cases uh, for war crimes. Like almost all of the senior Israeli politicians have open war crime trials uh, against them. And so like the narrative that we think of uh, Israel and America is, not really the Israel that's actually Israel. Israel is a military state. Israel's strongest element, uh, you know, one of its to it to to you know our economy is weapons dealing, and uh, so there there's a mixture of Israel that wants to see ourselves as the good guy, who you know is, like uh, is unfairly being criticized, and uh, you know like the David versus Goliath. And then there's the more practical of just, you know, God forbid, it's a killer, kill, be world. Uh, and you have to demonstrate strong military power. And that could be an alliance with Russia. I mean, there's difficulties aligning with Russia. And I, I predicted uh, actually that uh, Israel will end up allying with Putin because like from the beginning, I, I was, I'm predicting that, uh, you know, you, I mean, God forbid, without any, moral judgment. I'm not, you know, like saying who's a good guy or bad guy. Uh, people could think about that for himself, but just uh, logistically, uh, what I thought was likely to happen is that uh, the West isn't really going to do anything to help Ukraine. Um, you know, we might give a little bit of weapons, uh, but probably not even that much. And Putin is basically going to successfully be able to take over Ukraine to the you know, Dinpro River and maybe further, and he's going to annex it. And uh, there's going to be a lot of complaints. Um, and uh, a lot of countries are, are, are just going to side with Putin. And I think that Israel, um, personally, I think that I think that Bennett is going, it, it could be good for Israel in a certain way. I think that Bennett is, is likely to be the one who's going to negotiate the surrender of Ukraine. That, that would be my prediction, that like Ukraine's position is untenable um, in the next few weeks. Uh, it's likely that uh, the will of the Ukrainians to keep on fighting is uh, going to get weaker as uh, you know the siege and the starvation, and you know they see that the world's not coming to help them, and uh, there's going to be more and more of a will to surrender. And I actually think it's going to be Bennett and Israel that is going to be at the center of the negotiation of the surrender uh, of uh, you know parts of Ukraine to uh, Russia and the West is. It's probably going to be like uh, the Golan Heights in the West Bank, where where it's just like okay, we annexed it, uh, the world condemned us for it, uh, but you know, so what? We moved on, and you could keep on condemning it for us. We'll keep on arguing. We'll keep on claiming we're right, um, and uh, and like you know, people keep on talking about the you know the Abraham Accords. So like you know, this kind of false narrative of neocons about spreading democracy or or like values of the West. Uh, I think is inaccurate and, and really it's an agreement upon strongmen 
and Israel is a military straight, uh, state of strong men, and it's making an agreement with Saudi Arabia and UAE and Egypt, Bennett's in Egypt right now. And basically, God forbid, um, I think we're going to, you know, basically turn a blind eye on human rights abuses. And so at the end of the day, uh, you know, this kind of moral grandstanding, is, is that's all it is. And, uh, you, you know, so people be like, oh, he's wrong. He's bad. He's not going to get away with it. So after a few more weeks where he basically has gotten away with it, um, people will start thinking more practically. And I think Israel will uh, have a lot of leverage because uh, uh, Israel's not technically like a former Soviet state, but Israel has such a high population of Russians who still speak Russian. And Putin himself just joked about this that you could almost look at Israel as a former Russian state. And uh, you know, because Israel has hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian and Russian speakers, Israel has, I, I believe Israel has over 100,000 dual citizens, uh, like I mean, maybe even hundreds of thousands. I mean, so literally like, like a Roman, the, the richest man in Israel, uh, Roman Abr 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 Abramsky is a dual citizen. And I think uh, you know the majority of the richest people in Israel are actually dual citizens of Russian and uh, in Israel, and also uh, there's tens of thousands of Ukrainian Israel uh, du dual citizens. So uh, th that's what I see. I, I see that uh, Ukraine just uh, does. It's not going to be able to win this battle, and Israel is probably going to find itself in the center trying to negotiate some sort of surrender uh, of Ukraine or parts of Ukraine to Russia. I'm not sure if that makes sense to you. Yeah, and Israel has been very tentative to impose any sanctions on oligarchs because so many of the, the Russian oligarchs are Jewish. Uh, many of them have Israeli citizenship. So Israel is treading softly, softly with regard to its uh, billionaire Russians who live amongst it. Israel, ironically, um, has a 10-year loophole in tax-free income. So like you also, like if you, you know, okay, like your conversion is good enough, the right of return, and you move to Israel and where you maintain being a dual citizen, that for 10 years, Israel would not tax your income that you brought into Israel. And, uh, and they don't even really uh, look into it. So it's almost purposely designed that way that, you know, for, for uh, Jewish citizens from abroad to come to Israel um maintain dual citizenship and then feed the Israeli economy by bringing that money to Israel and Israel has set up a uh, huge advantages for people to do that like like I said like 10 years of uh, where you would not be taxed on income that you earned in America uh, that you brought into uh, Israel and uh, Russia Russia like the U the Israeli Russia at the same time is allied with Iran and uh, and right on the border and has historically supplied weapons to Palestine and Egypt and uh, and supported the uh, Arabs over Israel. Uh, but unfortunately, Israel doesn't have much leverage over over Russia. And so I think uh, you know it's 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 hard to tell like like what what uh, what what's going to happen. Um, but but Israel needs its Russian uh, you know its Russian elite. Uh, you, you know, like, God forbid, uh, uh, Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky passed away. I'd actually gotten a bracha from him, man. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, Russians are good Israeli citizens. R Russians, I mean, you know, there's some Russian mafia 
or crime, but generally Russians, even Russian non-Jews, uh, serve in the IDF. They uh, they work hard. They pay taxes. They're good Israeli citizens, as opposed to uh, Haredim. So uh, you like you can see with the refugees uh, that Israel will make a practical decision, and it probably go more with what's economically uh, beneficial for the state of Israel and militarily beneficial for the state of Israel over the Jewish character. So if it's a question of letting in hundreds of thousands of maybe Ukrainian non-Jews at this point, like uh, you, you know, like there's a big debate and uh, it appears to be uh, winning out that they're letting in Ukrainian non-Jews. Uh, but but uh, it's probably good for Israel militarily and uh, um, economically to keep on letting in Russian and Ukrainian non-Jews, and it's going to have a big change on the Jewish character, and it's probably going to be bad for the Kratom. You know, like the current uh, coalition government that uh, the Kratom have not been part of, and uh, you know, they're you know, like so the Kratom are like we're 100% Jewish, we follow the halakha, and they say, well, these Russians serve in the army and pay taxes, and so uh, I'm not sure if you've been following that debate at all, yes. uh, but uh, I, I it could uh, you know flip things uh, like permanently. Uh, I mean, the Kratom have basically, we've argued this many times, you know, since we've been talking, and like the Kratom have basically had the upper hand and won every single battle for decades. Uh, but I think actually the Ukrainian conflict and uh, could tip things in the favor. It could also um, create tension between American Jews in the way that, uh, you know, like there's no chance that Israel is going to put sanctions on Russia because I said like most of the wealthiest people in Israel are Russian citizens. Like, like it would be a disaster for Israel to uh, put sanctions on uh, Russia would be like sanctioning itself. And even at the extent that uh, if Israel had to uh, take worse ties with America, and that included, uh, 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 you know, basically Orthodox Jews, because the mainstay of, uh, I mean, there's some economic, like military U.S. government Christian, uh, but the main thing uh, is the high amount of Orthodox Jews in America that have family and care about Israel, even though they're not that strongly Zionist. And from that perspective, you're saying, what does Israel want? Does Israel want a bunch of American Orthodox Jews that uh, you know you know aren't even really Zionist, aren't going to serve in the army, and want to like you know live off the welfare of Israel? Or does Israel want like uh, Ukrainian and Russian non-Jews that are willing to fight for Israel and uh, pay taxes and build up uh, you know an Israeli state? And uh, do you have any thoughts on the passing of the Talmudic scholar, Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky? Yeah, I mean, I got a bracha from him twice. Like uh, my, my landlord, I, I mentioned to you on the show a few times, Bertrand said he was kind of like like the tourist, like there were two tourist attractions in Israel, the Kotel and Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky. So if you're an American Jew uh, and you fly to Israel, you uh you know you, you go to the hotel and then you go to Rabbi Kain Kanievsky and literally like thousands of people every day went to him and got brachos and asked questions and uh, yeah I'm not sure if in L.A. or something but if there was like an issue big enough that uh, you know like it like it stumped all of the major rabbis uh, like it probably got in front of Rabbi Kain Kanievsky and uh, you know, he's an interesting character I I have his art school biography I even have the art, uh, biography of his wife. And I think he, uh, you know, was the son-in-law of uh, um, 
I forget the last God of Lador passed away a few a few years ago. His name's slipping me right now. Eliashev, uh, but he was basically a renunciate. Um, you know, he lived very meagerly. Uh, you know, I mean, he he was a like a, I mean, he was a real Haredi. He was our our selected. You know, like huge family, grandchildren. Uh, but he basically lived uh, with very little money. Uh, he never went anywhere. He lived in his apartment. All he did was study and uh, go to shul. Uh, and he had these hardline opinions, like uh, like uh, like Adam Green type, but like uh, um, you know, like God forbid. Yes. Uh, <laughs> what I'm saying, like even the stuff, like because he didn't speak English. Like like if Adam Green had some of the stuff that Rabbi Kain Kanievsky said, like he said stuff like way worse than the English speaking rabbis that Adam Green puts on. I'm not, I'm not sure if you know what no I'm talking yes, about, but yes. like his views, uh, like his views about the Holocaust, his views about anti-Semitism, his views about Israel, or even tragedy. I remember um, when, God forbid, the Boston or Shul attacked, uh, you know, like that the Arab stabbed, you know, like four people with tefillin on them. If you remember that a few years ago, and uh, the the rabbi went to Rabbi Kain Kanyeski. Uh, like uh, I think you know the and it was like you know like you know literally like someone just came into my synagogue, and and uh, killed multiple people. They had to fill in on the blood all over the place, and the rabbi was just like uh, atonement for our sins. Uh, you know, so he had these hardcore Karate like Talmudic opinions where people would tell him about people dying and horrible suffering, or even the Holocaust, and he was just like, yeah, we got to stop sinning. Like God forbid, like you know, Hashem's punishing us for our sins, and so you know, like that is probably that that is the proper Haredi perspective. I mean, it's hard to take that perspective. You know, so we're people, we're religious Jews, we believe in Torah, but we're people. So like you know, people don't want to see people dying. Uh, but I think that, you know, like the pure Haredi perspective is like, no, I mean, God forbid, we're being punished for our sins, and it's probably going to keep on getting worse. So uh, you know, like he was probably the most hardcore of any rabbi in terms of his uh, rhetoric like that. Okay, and I'm just looking up Adam Green on uh, Canary Mission. So it says, uh, Adam Green has spread coronavirus anti-Semitism as well as general anti-Semitism. Green has also promoted anti-Jewish conspiracy theories and supported anti-Israel agitators. He spread hatred of Israel and is a supporter of the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement. What do you think about websites such as uh, Canary Mission, which put a spotlight on people who publicly say negative things about Jews? Um, well, I'd known about Canary Mission from when I, back when I was in University of Michigan and like Canary Mission was the main reason why BDS passed at University of Michigan because like the, the Palestinian students brought it every year for 10 years. And, uh, and then one year they put all of, uh, the people that voted in favor of it on Canary Mission. And, uh, and the next year they did a secret ballot and passed BDS and most of the people who, who voted for it openly said that it was because of canary mission and i mean in my mind it's a really bad strategy and it exasperates anti-semitism with kind of this goal of ruining the lives of uh, our enemies and it started largely with palestinians that you know for for a long time canary mission was focused almost exclusively on palestinians and then in the last you know decade or, or maybe even only five years they started focusing on anti-semitism in uh, in in general, and I mean, there's some there, there's two aspects to it. There's one thing, just a collection, like like there's a doxing factor, um, 
you know, where, where it's kind of like open, like base takes or something like that, where he's like, yeah, we will dox you. We will ruin your life unquestionably. Don't have a doubt about it. Uh, so even like base takes, if he's kind of like half, half, but like Canary Mission is like, no, anti-Semitism is no joke. We will dox you. We will ruin your life. Um, but beyond that perspective, just uh, um, having a database, like open database, let's say like if you, you're an anti-Semite, we're going to collect a web page uh, that shares all this information. And then, uh, and then like as a Jew, like if you're going to look at that, and then, you know, like, God forbid, uh, the list just keeps on getting longer and longer because, like, mostly it was Palestinians. And, like, obviously, Palestinians have a really strong reason to be anti-Israel. So, like, uh, like in University of Michigan, uh, you know, almost all the Palestinians, like, in university, almost all the Palestinians have anti-Israel sentiment support, uh, uh, you know, BDS. But, but uh, like, Americans, white people, uh, you know, really till Richard Spencer, the alt-right, there were anti-Semites, but it wasn't, uh, it, it was a minor phenomenon. And it was kind of like, you know, like, why, why are you so anti-Semitic? Like, uh, but at this point, uh, you know, it has drastically increased. And uh, I think it's diminished it. Like, like, uh, like I see the purpose to it. Um, I've never thought it was a good strategy, even on the free speech. Like, if, if they're not, like, trying to do a free speech and just saying uh, that, like, uh, like, look, like, people don't like us, so we're going to collect their names, we're going to put it out there. And then random Jews, uh, we're going to encourage them to try to ruin these people's lives, to try to uh, make them lose their jobs, to try to uh, make their friends and family uh, turn against them. Uh, that's a form of escalation. And, uh, you know, the, for people have thought like, uh, you know, like maybe they had thought like, you know, that, that, that we're just going to crush these anti-Semites and no one will ever hate Jews again. Uh, but uh, God forbid, I think it's had the reverse reaction. And if if I had to look back and say, what's the biggest cause of the increase in anti-Semitism? Uh, I would actually say it's probably Canary Mission and it's probably Jews trying to ruin the lives of anti-Semites that has been escalated because you're, I mean, we've talked about this uh, before in the past also, also, but your typical neutral goy who, you know, Gentile who uh, has a neutral positive view towards Jews doesn't want to ruin the life of anti-Semites because they're anti-Semites. They don't want to have to uh, fire or not be friends with their anti-Semitic friend, because uh, free speech is kind of like this fundamental value here in the U.S. So when the Jews put it like as an ultimatum, like either, you know, you team up with us to ruin the lives of this anti-Semite, or we're going to, you know, like you're either for us or against us, uh, that a large amount of the population that generally was neutral or positive towards Jews have turned against us because they're like, wow, like, you know, why are you trying to ruin these people's life just for uh, saying bad things about you? And is life getting back to normal in, in Michigan? And are you returning to a more social life after two years of lockdown? Um, yeah, because my business, like, you know, I've still got my you know, property uh, properties I'm managing in, in my bookstore. Like, I have almost 2,000 books listed. I'm almost at a point I could hire an employee. So uh, Michigan was one of the highest in the country for case counts for, like, the last three months. But Michigan's getting down where uh, they're probably about to lower, uh, uh, you know, lower the restrictions. It's possible to be an uptick. I'm not sure if like, uh, uh, you know, synagogues got back to normal and people were gathering and they weren't requiring masks. If, if anyone would care that I didn't get vaccinated. Like at this point, like I didn't catch COVID-19. It's been two years. 
and uh, you know, like, are people really going to be scared of me because I, I didn't get vaccinated? And I'm, I'm extremely careful. Uh, like, you know, generally, I keep social distancing. I am always washing my hands and, and various things. So I'm I'm not sure. Like, but at some point, I, I've kind of uh, you know, like I don't even know if I'm I'm really interested in anything anymore. Like, like uh, you know, like I have if they had outdoor minion, I don't even think they're going to go back to outdoor minion because most people are vaccinated now and uh, the case counts are low. Uh, so, you know, if case counts were low and people didn't care that I wasn't vaccinated, I, I would probably start going back to shul. I almost went to like Purim, uh, but case count was still like over a thousand a day, relatively high. And like Purim's definitely the time where people get in your face and, you know, there's like spit all over the place. And, and, uh, and, and I almost went to the Indian temple. So uh, I'll, I'll probably, like, it's possible there's going to be another uptick. Who knows? Uh, but if case counts start going down um, and, and things get back to normal, like uh, I'll, I'll start getting back to normal. I might wear a mask occasionally. Uh, I still basically wear my mask indoors. I went out to uh, you know, pick up some food, vegetarian food in uh, you know, Royal Oak, Michigan, who any, anyone in this area who knows uh, the area. And I was literally the only one wearing a mask. Like one time I went like I, I went in like a bar that there, there's two different bars, one Mexican and one other one that has you know, pretty good vegetarian food that I eat there occasionally. And literally uh, like it was packed and I was literally the only person I saw with a mask on. And do you, do you feel lonely from the lockdown the past two years? Do you feel you may have lost any social skills or you don't have any concerns? I don't really suffer loneliness. In fact, I, I think... I think I use the excuse of not getting vaccinated, like in order to become a loner, because uh, you know it was like a good COVID nineteen was like a good excuse. So I'm not even like in a big hurry. Like like I feel like you know I, I could feel like my health. Uh, like I'm past the prime of my health, um, and it hurts me to be single. So like I, I got to find a wife. I think I could find part. I think you know, like Parnassa uh, that I wouldn't need to uh, re-enter, but. Uh, you know, I got to find a wife somehow. Um, but uh, no, I, I don't have really any, you know, God forbid, I, I don't really have uh, any desire to like re-socialize. Like, like I'm kind of down, especially like Putin and, and uh, you, you know, like all, all the uh, personality conflicts and the power struggles, you know, even, even thinking like, is, is there's really nothing I'm looking forward to getting back to. Uh, like, like I, I'd like to go to Minion, hear Kriya Satora, um, you know, there's some people I'd like to have in conversations with, uh, but, uh, but like, honestly, I'm kind of a loner. I like just being able to study with the power of the internet. I could still talk to people and, uh, you know, like, I'm looking like net negative, like people, God forbid people are net negative, Luke. I'm sorry. Like just being around people is like, uh, is like a net negative. <laughs> and, and how about, what do you think about men participating in, in women's sports? So there's. This one guy um, who's now going by the name Leah Thomas, and he's been women winning uh, women's races in, in swimming. How do you how do you feel about that phenomenon? Would you feel comfortable being in the same bathroom as a as a guy who identifies as a woman? No, and that's why I say it's like a net negative. So, like, if I did go back into public, that's the type thing. Like, I could talk intelligently about politics, like, like, but, but, like, uh, most people aren't even going to want to intelligently talk about politics that's the type thing people are going to want to talk about and uh you know my opinion on it's just gonna uh, lose me friends and make everybody upset 
and you know, like really like I don't I don't want to talk about it. So like, I I just like no opinion. I'm still kind of a libertarian, so I'm not like uh, you know like people ask me my uh, you know like like I I uh, uh, recommend against degenerate behavior, uh, but I'm a libertarian. I'm not a, I'm not in favor of you know live and let live type uh, person. Uh, but uh, you know it's kind of what I said like being around people is a net negative because like no I don't I don't want to like uh, uh, th that's probably the type of conversation it's the type things that uh, and like I, I have a lot of homosexual friends and and like I'll deal with homosexuals or you know equally uh, but but like I hate that stuff being thrown into my face and, and kind of like the group thing where, where it'd be like uh, you know like the like the thought police where, where people would constantly ask you about this. And you, you know, you you could only uh, change the subject how many times until they would force your opinion out, and then you would give your opinion, and then people would boycott you. And, and uh, so I'm thinking, like, yeah, like uh, being around people is a net negative, God forbid. And even like coaching chess, like I, I'd like to go back to coaching chess. There's a bunch of things I'd like to go back to, but uh, just thinking about it, like almost all human interaction is a net negative. I mean, I, mean, I don't know if you're as pessimistic or, or you maybe agree oh, with no you, i i wouldn't go that far you I, have I, such strong emotional needs that even though it's a net negative you'll deal deal it anyway i but, don't find it a net negative i'm just careful about who i invest in to, to spend time with and to talk to so for, for me overwhelmingly human conversation human interaction is a positive thing because i, I bail out of circumstances and social situations that are negative well, yeah. So I mean, I was always careful in traversing, and I, I, you know, I went to very few places and was careful about what I said and who I said it to, and that's why I got into streaming. Like I value human interaction, but I'm saying that I, I, I would think that most places I would go to, it, it would be kind of like unpleasant, and it's tough to. It's it's easier on the internet to like meet people, uh, and talk about or have dealings with the dealings you want to have. So like you know, even in synagogue. I mean, you could sit next to and speak to the people you want to speak to, uh, but uh, yeah, I, I think like uh, at, you know, this point basically, you know, God forbid, I'm pretty pessimistic on America. I, mean, I don't think necessarily anything catastrophic is going to happen, but but I think people are going to keep on, like I said at the beginning, people are just going to keep on doubling down, and uh, you know, people have you know, really started to believe their own propaganda, and uh, you know, so it's unclear, right? like. I had hoped that, you know, like the post-COVID world would uh, somehow be different. Like, you know, now, you know, God forbid, almost a million people in America have died, uh, you know, lockdowns, uh, you know, two years uh, that uh, I don't think people have really changed. I think people just want to get back to normal. And I think the normal's going to be worse. And, and, and God forbid, I think uh, the troubles facing America are, are just getting started. Like COVID-19 was really bad. Almost a million people died, uh, you know, two years of lockdown, wearing masks, something that was basically unheard of. Most people never would have imagined such a thing possible that we would have had to live through. Um, but uh, I, I think we're in, I think we're headed for severe austerities. Um, you know, whether there's going to be like racial violence or political upheavals or, or even something like what's happening in Ukraine could happen in America. Like I always said, I thought, America would balkanize and split up. And it was kind of based on my conversations with Russian Jews in Israel and America, where, you know, uh, people were just like, uh, you know, one day they were Russian and then the government fell and there was no more Russia and these other states rose. And, uh, you know, I, I you know, uh, Brundle's in the 
you know, the chat, we talked about that already, you know, years ago, the balkanization of America. Uh, so I, I still think that might happen, but uh, even, even about like, I think we're going to have uh, massive austerities and you might have, uh, you know, inflation, wage, wage uh, and uh, price increases, uh, gas. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, you have such a, I, I still think like, you know, business-wise people will be able to succeed, but, but I think generally the outlook for America economically is looking pretty bad and there's going to be mass inflation and austerities coming, uh, whether that will have, you know, things like crime and violence uh, may or may not uh, be the case. So how would you describe the ratio of your interactions with other people face-to-face? -face? Would you twice negative to every positive, five times negative to every positive, even how would you describe the ratio? COVID, I, I've had, I had any interactions, and and you know besides my family, and they've all been with masks on. Even to, you know, like just the last week or two, I've I stopped wearing my mask around uh, my parents. Uh, but but generally, I'm pretty civil and, and good at avoiding conflict. So I mean, I, I almost always avoid conflict, and especially IRL. Like you know, on the internet, I, I you know argue or or you know even to, you know, have these like violence flexing. Uh, but uh, IRL, I almost always avoid conflict, walk away uh, from conflict. So, uh, you know, usually I just don't tell people my opinion. Um, you know, yeah, I usually, you know, if people insult me or treat me poorly, I usually just accept it. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, I, I kind of have my victories. I'll take my small victories. I'll, uh, you know, like, you know, like the synagogue, you know, for, I put five years of my life into trying to make a, a you know, minion and Torah studies at uh, the Detroit synagogue. And then they, you know, basically ran me out and put in a progressive feminist rabbi. And, uh, you know, so I, I just took my licks and, and you know, left and, um, but, you know, so I'm not really conflict. So I, I, like, I probably wouldn't even go back to the synagogue because there's nothing, you know, the only thing there for me now at this point is liberal progressive Judaism. And I'm not going to fight for something that uh, I, I would lose the fight anyways, even if I tried to, you know, you know, bring back a you know, Orthodox minion or or something like that. I would lose all those fights. So I, uh, uh, I, mean, I might go to an event or something. Uh, but yeah, I mean, generally I'm pretty good at avoiding conflict, and so I, I would say that I don't usually have negative reactions. Uh, but but it takes a lot of uh, humbleness. It takes a lot of uh, accepting people insult me. Uh, you know, accepting slights. Uh, you know, very rarely saying what I think and being very selective in uh, the conversation, but I'm pretty successful at knowing and being friendly. Like, I think uh, I, I was pretty well-known and popular in many ways, basically everywhere I went, you know, everywhere I went, I, I was, I had friends, I had people that, you know, uh, that, that, that liked me and we liked each other. And we talked about what we wanted to talk about. And, uh, you know, usually the power structures were against me. So I just avoided the power structures, uh, you know, took insult and avoided conflict. So I assume that I would be able to go back to doing that. And I assume that, uh, you, you know, despite your controversies on the internet or blogging, that you're probably, you know, similar to that IRL where you could just go into a you know crowded place, uh, you know, be able to make your friends or connections, uh, let the power structures, uh, you know, leave them at B and avoid, uh, you know, you know, clashing with the power structures. And, uh, and, you know, just uh, be humble, take a few slides, walk away from conflict and have successful interaction like doing that. So I, I don't know. I'm pretty sure I could go back to doing that. 
And what's the most fun that you've had online in 2022? Um, I, I still got week in review going like, you know, Jennifer, we're holding strong now, uh, you know, like uh, almost three years. And, and so we, you're like, surprisingly, I've really returned to studying math and science. So I wouldn't have expected, uh, uh, you know, I think I even understand quite a bit to, uh, um, uh, and I, I'd been opening the show with with a Hebrew chant for for years now, but like after two years, like like a hundred chants, I, I like I I, I uh, you know, ran out of them. Or I, I started repeating them, so I started doing analysis of secular music. So I, I was doing the other day um, what I called the the degeneration of American culture from the hero's journey to the loser's journey. So I, I was in, in like uh, so example last night, I was doing an analysis of the transformation of the love song into the lust song. And like I was examining, you know, like the past, like from opera to the Beatles to the 80s of, uh, you know, like Billy Joel to uh, you know, the degeneration of society from music. So it's just something, uh, you know, surprising. I, I, I'm, I'm a pretty even person. So I wouldn't say I had, you know, any really excitement or fun. Uh, but, uh, you know, so I, I had a little, uh, you know, enjoyment that, you know, Jennifer still likes doing week in review. So I, I get to ramble on like these cultural things and I've been doing it so long. I'm like Kevin Michael Grace, right? I just have like, uh, you know, these like, uh, you know, insights on uh, the change of culture over tens of years. And uh, you know, so I, I actually kind of enjoy that, like, uh, you know, surprising, like Duvid's like a, like a protege of KMG. And what about you and marijuana these days? Um, I, I actually smoked a tiny bit of marijuana on Purim. So I think it, it's been almost a year where I smoked a little bit on sukkah and then I, I my, my tenant had left a little bit in, in, uh, in, in my house. So I had, uh, I had some, uh, that, that, that you know, on Purim. So I, I did actually smoke a little marijuana a few days ago, uh, but, uh, yeah, I think I basically quit. Um, maybe Passover, I'll smoke a tiny bit. Probably, maybe not even. Uh, you know, but but I, I did actually have a tiny bit on sukkah. But besides that, uh, you know, like I basically quit and haven't smoked at all. Okay, great. Uh, good to talk to you, David. Any any final words for this evening? Yeah, I know you haven't been streaming as much, and I see you've been talking with uh, Elliot. Maybe you maybe you gave up on like. Like Charles is still trying to like promote himself and get his show going, and it's a lot of work. I tried booking guests for Charles, and it's difficult. I actually got Rodney on his show. Uh, it's tough reaching out to people and the research and making a good show. Uh, so, you know, like, thank God I have. We have a pretty small audience. You know, just like we usually get over a hundred views, ten to twenty viewers. But uh, you know, we can review uh, to have a little social interaction. But uh, you know, trying to promote and grow a platform is, is a lot of work. So I don't know if, the, if uh, you know, that if you feel that you kind of gave up on trying to uh, promote and grow a big platform. So you just like streaming and talking with a few people you you enjoy talking to, which is kind of how I feel about it right now. I don't have any, I think it'd be near impossible even if I wanted to. And, you know, just the risk, the work, the reward of trying to build up a platform. Although I'm still working with Charles, stream with him once a week and trying to book guests occasionally but 
yeah, that, that would my guess is uh, I'm not sure if my read is right that you kind of just gave up on uh, trying to build up your you know streaming and, and just keep on doing it because you enjoy talking to people yeah I pretty much only done what I wanted to do what I was enjoying doing so uh, when when other interests take over when I have more of a social life or there are certain books that I want to power through or just uh, just want to go for a walk so last last six months I've been I've been walking or biking about 10 miles a day. So that's like two hours of my day that I used to spend live streaming and now I spend exercising. Yes, I guess that's good. And so me and you have found some commonality. Just use the technology for uh, your positive purposes to find people who want to talk about the same things or, you know, international, even like Ukraine through streaming, you know, just you pop on, you could speak to all sorts of people or find out about things. Uh, versus, uh, you know, trying to like build build an audience, which is uh, pretty tough work. I and mean, I guess you're there in Hollywood, so that's what you guys do. But uh, um, you know, I always enjoy the conversations and uh, you know, in interesting people. And uh, so, uh, also ironically, uh, politically provoked. Uh, it was too much for me to work together with them. I, I had somewhat friendly relations uh, with them, uh, but. Uh, you know, they kind of turned into, you know, like your show used to be, but they went with the irony bros and it looks like uh, cozy TV is about to platform uh, politically provoked. So, oh, uh, wow. so, you know, actually largely through you that uh, I've been able to kind of be a behind the scenes player as a booking agent, you know, just through being able to, uh, you know, like Brittany who, uh, you know, just got into the business and she hadn't heard any of these names. So I was able to, you know, give her you, and uh, Adam Green, a few other people, and uh, and then she teamed up with the Irony Bros as being platformed on uh, Cozy TV. So I, I thought that was, you, you know, kind of cool. But like I, I, that does it's too much for me to uh, you know like John saying my hair, you know, like getting more and more gray hair, you know, so to be sitting there like yelling back and forth with counter Semites. Uh, but I thought that was uh, you, you know interesting, and it's probably somewhat due to uh, you know me and you. Because I think that I, you know, she, you know, they never heard of the Irony Bros, and you would work with the Irony Bros, and uh, and you know, so you were on their show, and next thing you know, the Irony Bros and Fuentes, and now they're being, uh, now they're moving to uh, Cozy TV. So that you might find that interesting. Okay, David, uh, great to talk to you and catch up, man. Yeah, you too. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye bye. So I was inspired to do this stream because I was thinking about how many of the lower IQ people I would talk to in the past on, on the distant right, that their big thing, that their, their major source of energy was uh, Holocaust denial. And that was like the most transgressive thing they could do. That was how they could most effectively virtue signal how committed they were to the white race by burning all bridges to polite society. And now I notice many of these same people, the uh, the you know, the, the Daily Stormer and the the right stuff, uh, many of their, their supporters, they've kind of switched from emphasizing how risky they are, how edgy they are. They, they've switched from uh, denying the Holocaust to uh, venerating Putin, and Putin is the great white savior of the West. And uh, Nick Fuentes has a very different energy. He, he does it in a much more light and fun manner. And then... Well, the, the Right Stuff crew, they they mix humor with uh, deadly seriousness. and uh, But still, there's that, that undercurrent of, of transgressiveness. Now they're all in with Putin. They used to be you know, all in with minimizing the Holocaust. 
And let's have a look at uh, what Douglas Murray has to say. For years, the Cold Warriors and their descendants uh, thought one thing, which was, you know, Putin was an aggressor, he was a strategic uh, threat, and that Russia under him uh, was going to remain some kind of challenge to the West. But all the time, a new generation was coming along. And I don't just mean uh, age-wise. I mean, inevitably, a generation that grew up after the Cold War might be more susceptible to, to this view, but, but older people as well took a different view, which was, among other things, that Vladimir Putin presented a sort of um, counterweight or a counterbalance to some of the worst madnesses in our own society. I give examples in the piece, uh, not least from uh, some American congresswomen, which is perhaps most alarming, um, uh, but, but others as well, who sort of said things like, well, you know, you, you, uh, there was a guest on Steve Bannon's podcast recently who said, who said, well, you know, in Russia, they don't, they don't have any problem knowing which bathroom to use. Uh, that sort of thing, that because our own societies were going mad with the sort of woke stuff, that somehow a society which didn't have any truck with any of that, or even the most basic rights for LGBT people, for instance, uh, acted as a sort of admirable counterweight. And in time, this, this I think, has grown. And I show a, a little bit of how that has happened uh, in the media, in politics and elsewhere, where, uh, where this, this strange new sort of interpretation of Vladimir Putin originated and from there grew. This, it should be said, is an incredibly fringe part of the American right. It's led by an exceptionally unpleasant little uh, anti-Semite Called, uh, okay, I think it's ridiculous to call uh, Nick Fuentes exceptionally unpleasant. He's a, a funny, charming guy. You can disagree with him all you like. And anti-Semite is not, is not one of his most outstanding characteristics. All right, it's probably not even in the top five. Fuentes. And he, he, he's one of a generation of what I describe as sort of people who've grown up online and who think of themselves or described as sort of edgelords. These are really pathetic people who, who like to sort of play with the dark stuff, you might say. Play with the things you're not meant to play around with. There are people on the left who do the same thing, you know, who sort of, I've written about this in the past, who sort of play around with Stalinism and other things, knowing how dangerous it is, knowing how unpleasant and upsetting it is. It's not dangerous to, to, to play around with Nazism today because there's, there's absolutely no chance of starting another Nazi country. It's not dangerous to play with Stalinism today, right? At worst, what you could do is, is you know, exaggerate some antisocial tendencies among some people so that they then throw in with these lost causes. But overall, on a social and national basis, there's no danger in Nazism or Stalinism. But slightly reveling in it. And there has emerged also a, a tiny segment, but a, a, a significant thing to note on the American right, which does the same thing, which is, for instance, as Fuentes himself is. Sort of and a lot of homophobia in the chat directed against Douglas Murray. Guys, don't you know that long-winded dinner conversations are going to save our civilization? Into Holocaust minimization, if not full Holocaust denial, uh, Holocaust joking, certainly a sort of... Um, uh, all sorts of spreading of ugly anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and more. And one of their main things they've treated themselves to in this sort of quasi-sexual thrill, which, as I say in the piece, is possibly because they know no other type of sexual thrill, this type of person has sort of treated themselves to um, 
to admiring Putin, knowing that this brings uh, condemnation down on them to some extent, but rather reveling in it. So yes, at this ugly, ugly uh, far-right gathering, uh, which uh, unbelievably the uh, idiot congresswoman uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene actually spoke to, spoke at, she said she didn't hear the chants of Putin, 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 which happened just before she came on. And things like this, they sort of burst out with their enthusiasm for Putin. I think, among other things, these people do it. I mean, it's not worth lingering over them because they're not a significant political force. But I think it's a sort of example of something. People who, who think our societies are so decadent that, that we should admire the strong man in the Kremlin. Of course, there are so many things that are wrong with this. Uh, not the least of which is that they take Vladimir Putin at his own estimation of himself. They've basically fallen for a form of Russian propaganda, which is, we are tough, you are weak. We are strong, uh, you are, uh, you know, into all of this sort of woke nonsense. And as I say, it, it, it should be kind of obvious to any thinking conservative that that you can be simultaneously aware that your own society is going kind of mad and also not as a result look for refuge in a far madder man sitting in isolation in the Kremlin and ordering the invasion of neighbouring countries. By the way, I, I, I would dispute what through I'm a great admirer of Thru's, but I dispute it slightly because actually on the American right there has, there has historically always been a niche but interesting movement that has taken a similar view, that has said, you know, effectively that uh, Russia, or back in the day, even in the 40s and 50s and 60s, there were some figures on the fringe of the far right in America who believed that the Soviets were effectively a natural ally. Again, you see little bits of this in the residue of, of these movements today. The idea is, for instance, I mean, absolutely unfathomably stupid thing to believe under the Soviet regime, which was extremely exceptionally anti-clerical. But you see it in the regime today, we, in, the, um, in some of this response today, the inheritors of this movement who think that, who think that Vladimir Putin is, for instance, the devout and entirely non-cynical supporter of the Orthodox Church and believer that he occasionally puts himself out to be. I mean, how naive and illiterate historically and currently you need to be to believe that Vladimir Putin's cloaking himself in the Orthodox Church is a, is a holy truthful and fulsome uh, 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 defence of Christendom is amazing. And as I've said in the past week a number of times, uh, if you believe that Vladimir Putin is the sort of bulwark, the defender of Christendom, then you would have to ask why he's using Islamist and indeed jihadist groups from Chechnya to roll in shouting Allahu Akbar and going and murdering Orthodox uh, Christians in the Ukraine. But let's let's pass over that for a second. The The... The more important point in a way is what, what you're leading me to is, of course, this isn't just about a fringe. Because these days in American politics, as in all of our politics, there is a melding point of fringes and the mainstream. Now, the most obvious and troubling example in the past week were the comments that were made by former President Donald Trump, who is, of course, not at all a fringe figure. His comments on, uh, on Putin and his invasion of Ukraine... I wouldn't say that people get mixed up between admiring Putin as an effective leader for the Russian people, which I think Putin was prior to this invasion and loving Putin, right? You can admire a CEO who's effective. You can admire someone you hate, but you can admire how effective they are. And so Putin has been the most effective 
leader of a major power, I think, in the past 20 years. The main significance of this war is the possibility that it may lead to a nuclear conflict. Here is uh, Peter Zion on that. Hey everybody, Peter Zion here coming to you from Colorado. Uh, we're going to talk about nukes today. So early in the Ukraine conflict, the Russians threatened NATO countries and neutrals on their western border with nuclear attack should they intervene in the military action, as they call it, uh, in their interventions in Ukraine, the Ukraine war, as everyone else is calling it. Switch the Russian army's deterrent forces into a high alert mode of combat standby Everyone I know that uh, works in the Defense Department, they're not dismissing the Russian threat, but they point out that this has been done over and over and over again. And on this specific instance, they've detected no change in how the uh, Russians are managing their, their nuclear forces. There's no change in alert status. Uh, they see no reason to think that the Russians are going to escalate to that level at this point. So they're taking it seriously, but they're not overly concerned. Uh, the concern actually has to do with Russian extreme weakness. Uh, the Russians have underperformed throughout this entire war, and it's like they've unlearned all of the lessons that they learned from World War II and especially the Chechen conflict. So the Ukrainians aren't simply just carrying out guerrilla actions against Russian forces. They're carrying out conventional actions using vehicles and using air power. On uh, March 16th, the Ukrainians launched a very successful attack on the Kyrgyzstan airport and blew up all kinds of Russian aircraft on the ground. The, the Russians should have achieved air superiority in the first 48 hours of this conflict. There should, there should be no Ukrainian jets in the air whatsoever. There shouldn't be any drones flying. They have air defense coverage over almost the entirety of Ukraine and all of the conflict zones. And yet the Ukrainians are able to hit them with conventional forces over and over and over and over and over. This should not be happening. And I think that the, uh, what really spooked the White House is that giant convoy that was coming north from Belarus down to Kiev, this 40 mile long column of vehicles. It ran out of fuel in one day and it ran out of food in three days. And the Russians had to leave on foot to go back to Belarus to find fuel trucks. I mean, this is like Keystone Cops level of logistics. This is making the Iraqis in the Desert Storm conflict back in the early 90s look competent. This level of just complete ineptitude across the entire military space for the Russians signals. So I heard about this app called Yik Yak, where people can post anonymously from within five miles around you. And so I just uh, downloaded Yik Yak. So here's what's going on on my Yik Yak. Man ghosted me three months ago, and now he has the audacity to show up in my nap dreams. No, sir, you can leave my subconscious now. Next, Yik Yak. We just made this man's dream come true. Four-way with three sorority girls. You're welcome. Next one. May not know what women want, but I know it ain't me. Next. Don't let yourself become cold and jaded because you got hurt. You'll ruin potential new opportunities. One of my girls didn't believe me when I told her a ton of straight guys have messed around with dudes. I just want to cuddle with someone. Let me tell you a secret. I've been secretly banging your homeboy. 
Uploading your own yaks is a form of self-care. Sororities and frats are so dumb, you pay thousands of dollars a semester to buy friends. Half of them won't even like you. Is it normal to get a prostate exam during your eye appointment? Being kicked out by my roommate for being mentally ill. God, I wish I knew what it was like to be a tall, good-looking man. So that's what's hot on my yik yak right now. Signals that they're not nearly the threat that we've always thought that they were, and that's a problem, because it's my position that the Ukrainians are not the primary target here. The Russians are expanding west to try to get to the gateway territories that allow access to the Russian space. They need to block the Bessarabian gap, which means a conflict with Romania. They need to block the Polish gap, which means going all the way to Warsaw. And they need to get the surface, excuse me, the, uh, the beaches of the Baltic Sea. So that means going into all three of the Baltic republics, Romania, Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. Those are all NATO countries. If the Russians are showing themselves to be this weak, we now know that in any direct confrontation between American forces and Russian forces, the Russian forces are just going to be obliterated. And that will leave the Russians with a very difficult choice to make. Humiliating, horrible strategic surrender and withdrawal or escalate to the nuclear question. And so the de facto position of the American military, the American government, and NATO in general, is now that we have to shove as many weapons as we possibly can into Ukraine so that the Russians never can advance past Ukraine. We have to turn Ukraine into a killing zone so that American Russian forces never actually face off and so that the nuclear question is off the table. And so to that end, we have seen a redoubling of efforts by the entire Western family of nations to arm the Ukrainians with whatever can be transferred. The U.S. is leaning on countries in Central Europe, the countries that used to be Soviet satellites, to up and relocate as many of their Soviet area systems into Ukraine as possible. And discussions are ongoing about backstopping all of those with American equipment. For the United States specifically, I think the single biggest thing that's going to matter in the next month are Stinger missiles. When the war began, the Ukrainians had very, very few of them. Only ones that had been forwarded on from the Baltic republics. Remember, the Baltics combined only have a population of uh, 7 million. So you're talking just about a few dozen missiles. But now the Americans are shoving stingers in the hundreds into Ukraine, and they're only now starting to arrive. And that should generate a massive fatality rate among the Russian jets that are trying to operate in this space. So this is going to get a lot worse a lot quicker than any of us had ever thought, because now we're trying to provide a fire break in Ukraine so that the Russians can never advance to the point that nukes come into contention. So it's not just the Russians who are engaging in civilian obliteration projects across the length of the country in order to destroy future guerrilla possibilities. It's now the West specifically trying to make sure that the Ukrainians can bleed the Russians everywhere in every possible combination of tactics to make sure that they can never move beyond that country. This war is getting really nasty.
I'm not buying the talk when you know people get on TV and go, oh, he's, he's going crazy. He's losing his mind. He's a, uh, uh, I'm not buying that. There's a reason why he's, he's, he's driving the way he is. And, and again, he's being somewhat consistent. He's never given a shit about civilian casualties. Right? Never bothered him before. I mean, that, that, yeah, that situation in Chechnya when they went in there, right? And I mean, that was, that was yeah, I have to argue there was, the other side was, you know, was, was different as well. Some of the Chechen separatists were, and some of the shit that they were pulling we got to understand. I don't think he's he's not crazy. He's not going to say, "Okay, I'm in a corner. I'm going to I'm going to push the button and fire off a couple of tactical nukes." Right? I think what he's gotten to the point is is, you know, you guys have disrespected me. This is how he thinks, right? You've disrespected me. Fuck you all. I told you I want my sphere of inf- sphere of influence, and I don't care whether I have to break it. Um, I'm going to have it. When you yeah. say sphere of influence, do you mean he wants to reclaim what is the former Soviet Union? Yeah, he said that. He said he said publicly in the past. He called uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. That's and, and he's, he's he's serious about that. He means that. Right. So he's not he's not fucking around. If we look at it, he's being consistent, right? He's being consistent over the years. He's he's a you know he's a, he, he's a dictator. He's a despot. He's looking increasingly more like you know he's isolating himself, right? He's already mm-hmm. cut loose some of his inner circle just over the past couple of weeks, right? Has he? Yeah, he's gotten rid of his, his – uh, well, he put under house arrest a couple of his FSB uh, uh, senior command. Why, uh, why did he do that? The domestic service because he, because the intel was so bad <laughs> because going in – Oh, because of Ukraine? Yeah, because of going Ukraine. In? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, because of Ukraine. So they went in and the assumption was – and now, again, this is where our intel is lacking. Was he given bad intel or was he given intel and he just chose to ignore it? But it appears as if what he believed and what the top military commanders, some of whom have also been let go um, or possibly reassigned. I don't think that's a good thing in, in Russia uh, is uh, that they were going to they were going to get in there that maybe within 48 hours. They were going to have control of Kiev. They would be welcomed by the population in the Ukraine uh, and they would be able to establish a puppet regime, a new government. And uh, looking at the, the chat, so David, as he was signing off, he, he noticed that uh, my show's been just uh, talking to Elliot Blatt the last few months. So Elliot says in the chat, talking to Elliot Blatt means that you're giving up. And Ricardo says, David is the best at the seemingly unintentional insult. And uh, half Galician says, David is like Rabbi Elazar ben Azaria, whose beard turned gray overnight when he was 18. It was a miracle, so that the elders would respect him. Ricardo says, I would do a stream with Elliot. Maybe Duvid and uh, Ricardo will get going on Odyssey. Bernard says, where is my sphere of influence? I deserve it. Been telling you this, guys, for years. All right, good uh, interview with Peter Zion here. <laughs> well... My personal opinion is that the best modern president we've had is George Herbert Walker Bush because he presided over the end of the Cold War without a shot being fired, and he set us on the path to getting rid of 80% of the nuclear weapons on the planet. Those are a couple huge wins from my point of view, and part of the reason it worked so well is he always told people, never dance on the wall. If you've got the Russian system that is self-disarming and self-moving away from dictatorship, you do not brag about that publicly. You help them do it behind the scenes if you need to, in public if it makes sense. And 
because of that, he was able to push something that he called the New World Order, the Thousand Points of Light, if you remember that. And the whole idea was to have a conversation among the American people about what kind of world we wanted to bequeath to the next generation. Now that And a question in the chat, what do I think about the Azov Battalion? Seemed like hardcore Ukrainian nationalists and uh, like any hardcore military group, I'm sure they can do some horrible things and they can also be a formidable fighting force for your side. So no group and uh, nothing in life is just an unalloyed uh, blessing. So I'm sure the Azov Battalion are hardcore fighters for Ukraine who, uh, according to their reputation, have gone... A little too far at times. The Soviet monster was gone. What do we want? And we decided we didn't want to have that conversation. We punished him for it. And in the next eight elections, well, seven elections, we voted in the candidate who wanted to do less with the world. And when we got to this most recent one between Biden and Trump, we had two populists running who didn't even talk about American leadership at all. The only difference in terms of economic foreign economic policy between the two of them is that Trump ruled by tweet and then just let everything fall, whereas Biden is actually institutionalizing Trump-ish populism into American trade law and foreign policy, which makes it even more surprising that Biden has taken such a strong stance here on Ukraine. So, you know, the fault is ours. We're the ones who have elected a, a, a litany of leaders who are populist, who have not been interested in foreign affairs, and that's led to this point. If we had stuck with George Herbert Walker Bush 25 years ago, now it's been, we'd probably be in a very different place. We'd probably have a balanced budget. We probably would have been better prepared for the COVID epidemic. Uh, the Russians would probably not be a threat. China would be a radically, radically different place. Because remember, this is the guy who was in charge during Tiananmen, and he set things into motion to take us in a very different direction. And then Bill Clinton just wiped it all away. Uh, so, you know, if you're looking for a point, an inflection point, that's well in the past. Mm. The great hope from my point of view, because I'm, I'm an Atlanticist, I, I'm a globalist, and I've kind of lost over and over and over and over again <laughs> in terms of American elections. But the hope is that this conflict in Ukraine will trigger Americans to finally have the conversation that Bush Sr. wanted us to have. And if we have a national debate about our place in the world and what we want to see, you know, maybe that will take us into a better place than we are now. But right now we're dealing with international disintegration. Because even if this war ends today, we're still looking at a multi-year energy crisis and a multi-year agricultural crisis that is going to generate famines that cover continents. And the energy crisis is going to trigger a global depression that will last years. I mean, that's just where we are now. The supply system has been disrupted on both points. And it will take us a minimum of five years to fix that. And these are all things that you've actually been writing about for a long time. If anything, the current crisis just accelerates them. Before we get into those things, I have a question. You mentioned that you called Biden a populist. That's an interesting way to think about him. Is he a populist? Is and Brian says, Luke, you think Azov's black metal satanic aesthetics is just for show? Are they really sacrificing people and doing cannibalism? Uh, I, I think some of the, the harshest things said about them, such as they're sacrificing people, nailing people to a cross and, and doing cannibalism. I, I don't believe that's true. Is his administration populist? Because my memory of Biden was always the guy running for president that bored everyone to death with foreign policy. <laughs> 
you got a point. I'm talking more about his economic policy, especially when it comes to trade. Both him and mm-hmm. Trump are broadly anti-trade. Every single thing that Trump did on his way out the door versus the Chinese and versus the Europeans is still there. There's actually only one thing that has changed. So, I mean, we still have all the sanctions on the Chinese. We still have all the domestic reindustrialization policies. We still have all the trade tariffs on everyone with one exception. We did cut a deal with the Europeans so that uh, any steel that comes into the United States and Europe, if it's made with uh, a lot of coal, will not get access. And that was specifically targeted against China. But honestly, I see that as just another tariff. But in everything else, he is putting the flesh on the bones that Trump started. Mm. It's disturbing to a certain degree, whether you're on the left or the right, the similarity between the two men when it comes to outcomes. All right. So let's bring it back to Ukraine now. I have a question, which is, why is what happens to Ukraine important to the world? Because if the forces that we're dealing with here are so indomitable, specifically demographics and geography, why exactly does it matter? Well, let's start with the headline. The Russian government has been working to undermine the United States pretty much nonstop for the last 15 years. And uh, to a degree, they've been successful. They've been able to use things like social media and hacking, not just to interfere in our election system, but to back certain groups within the United States and especially to inflame tensions. So Michael Moore, Greenpeace, the anti-vaxxers, the MAGA crowd, he's gotten all of these groups to get a lot more coverage than they should have. And in, in cases of things like Black Lives Matters and Blue Lives Matters, they've tried to arrange for them to have rallies at exactly the same place at exactly the same time. And so they've taken whatever our social divisions are and basically taken a pry bar to them to try to split us apart. And a lot of the fault for why politics have just been so toxic in the last decade, you can put squarely at Putin's feet. And I have certainly noticed on my Twitter feed that I have gone from dealing with dozens of trolls a day to like five because the Russians no longer have access. So the elimination of RT, the state media firm, from global audiences has been wonderful for political discourse. And I don't mean to suggest that Russians are the only problem here, but you've got to admit in the last three weeks, a lot of the heat in the internal political debates has gone down because social media all of a sudden is not nearly as nasty as it used to be. So that's just kind of the one general current. Second, this is a country... Yes, I've noticed that. Uh, we've got much less rancorous, toxic partisanship. Uh, social media is not nearly as nasty. The West is united because the enemy has come clearly into view as an existential threat, meaning a threat to possibly uh, kill us with nuclear war or just to uh, wreak devastation on our way of life with the you know, gasoline prices possibly doubling, tripling. And so I-, I can't remember the last time the West was this united. I'm not sure it's happened in my lifetime. That has pointed thousands of nuclear weapons at us for 60 years. And so, you know, Call me kooky. I would like that to stop. And if that means that Ukraine is the place where we have to make this fight happen, so be it. Because no matter what happens to Ukraine, there's nothing in Ukraine that is a core American national interest. This is the perfect place to bleed Russians without having any immediate impacts on anything else that we care about. Now, if Ukraine falls, which it will, and if the occupation is finally pacified, which it might... Then we have to deal with this for real with NATO states. So 
drawing a line in Ukraine, I think, is the perfect place. Because if it stops here, then it stops forever. And if it doesn't stop here, then we're talking about needing to defend places like Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, and Romania. It's a very different picture from a risk point of view, and I would greatly prefer to not have a showdown with nuclear power in countries that we are treaty-bound to defend. Okay, now this is where we get to the really interesting slash scary part of the conversation, Peter, and also one that I think will shock a lot of people. And I think also, including me, even though I'd read This United Nations and I had you on the podcast and I had a very good understanding of your overall view, it wasn't intuitively obvious to me that you believed that Putin's plan was not to simply stop at Ukraine. At least that's how I've interpreted what you think his initial plan was. So let's take this from the top. What do you think that initial plan was? And how has it changed based on the resistance that he's gotten? And then we can begin to factor in what you think the proper responses by NATO and Western countries should be and why you think that they should focus on fighting the war in Ukraine and how that can be done without causing an escalation and provoking Putin to attack a NATO member. Sure. So Putin certainly thought that the war was going to be easier than it has been. All indications suggested that uh, within a month they would have absolutely obliterated any meaningful conventional military capacity. And then it would be an issue of mopping up a country of 45 million people, which would take two or three months. That's clearly not happening. But the original, original, original goal was you secure Ukraine as quickly as possible. You set up your Quisling regime in Kiev. The thinking was there were plenty of Russian speakers. Nearly a third of the population speaks Russian fluently, mostly as their first language. And roughly a quarter of the population are actually ethnic Russians. So they thought they were going to be, to a degree, welcomed, at least in the east, and that they would not have to be going you know, building to building, leveling everything. Once they secured Ukraine, they would then grab Moldova probably over a long weekend because it's a country of two and a half million people. And they already have some troops there in a secessionist province called Transnistria that they kind of created in the same way they created the Donbass republics. Republics. Once that is done, then they go into the five NATO countries. Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania are one of those gateways on the Baltic coast. That's how the Swedes have invaded in the past. Eastern Poland going up to the Vistula River in downtown Warsaw to plug the Polish gap, which is how the, the Germans have always liked to invade, and then going to the southwest a little bit to grab territory adjacent to Moldova and Ukraine that is in Romania to plug the Bessarabian gap, which has always been the Turkish approach. That's always been the plan. That's always what the Russians have needed for security. But because the Ukrainians have provided more of a resistance and seem to have a stronger national identity than the Russians had counted on, they are now applying tactics that they used first in Grozny and then that they later perfected in Aleppo in the civil war in Syria. And it's simply urban obliteration to destroy every single piece of civilian infrastructure. Number one, to generate as many refugees as possible because refugees don't fight, they run. And the more Ukrainians that you can get out of the cities and out of Ukraine, the better. So we've had two and a half million Ukrainian refugees so far. It is the single largest refugee flow ever, and it's happened in less than three weeks. You should count that two and a half million going up at least to 10 over the course of the next couple of months, probably higher. 
The reason that the Russians are doing this civilian obliteration program is because if you have moved most of the population out, then when you do move in with troops, it's just shoot on sight for whatever you see. That's what they did in Grozny. That is what they did in Aleppo. And they will do this for every single population center that they come across. They're also doing it for every small city and town. Now, a couple things come from this. Number one, it means that the would-be guerrillas have very few places to hide, and the Russians can just assume that anyone who is still there is hostile. So it removes all the decision-making from the military. Second, if you obliterate the cities and towns, the farmers can't plant or harvest. So you generate a famine at the same time. And from the Russian point of view, the more dislocated, the more starving the population is, the less resistance they can generate. And this is what they're going to do for the entire country. That's already what they're doing for places like Mirapol and Mikolaev and Kiev and Kharkiv. But it's going to be done everywhere. Okay, a number of questions. My first question is, what is the size of the Russian military? In terms of active troops, you're talking give me about active a and, of a million. Give me active and reserves. Okay, looking at uh, Peter Zion's Twitter feed, he notes that uh, India was all a Twitter when the Quad formed. That was the alliance between the United States, Japan, India, and Australia. The Indians thought that meant that they had made the big time. But being in an alliance requires you to think of other countries' views. Australia is the best country to explain to India how that works without sounding belittling. So India does not want to join in on the sanctions against Russia, but that may well cost India its uh, close alliance with other nations like uh, the United States and, and Japan, because pretty much all the, the major powers in the first world are uniting against Russia. And probably the most significant part of all these sanctions against Russia is the, the message that they give to China. So if China tries to do something like invade Taiwan, they would get hit with similar levels of sanctions. And uh, China is essentially trying to play by these new sanctions. And a great article here on the Egypt independence, four ways that China is quietly making life harder for Russia. They're letting the ruble drop. They're sitting on reserves. They're not allowing Moscow to convert its yuan into US dollars or euro. And they're withholding aircraft parts. And they're freezing infrastructure investment. So one way to think about dealing with Putin is how would you deal with a difficult supervisor or co-workers? A concept that really had a significant impact on my life. My work life, my personal life, um, all of it, everything. And that is what I refer to as rule books. I learned this concept originally from Brooke Castillo. And yeah, everyone's got their own rule book. So people who you think is difficult or evil or just psycho, that, that's a common phrase, you know, with regard to, to Vladimir Putin, that he, somehow he's mentally ill, he's paranoid, he's psychotic. Well, maybe he's just working from a different rule book than what you expect. She calls it manuals. For some reason, my brain just like transferred that into rule books. It's what makes the most sense. So I'm going to talk to you about it as rule book. Here's the concept. Everyone in your life, and specifically what I'm focusing on for this video, is those of you that are struggling with somebody in your workplace, oftentimes it's a supervisor or manager, sometimes it's a coworker. And one of the things we don't realize is that we have a very specific rule book in our brain for how things should be done, how people should operate, 
how people should behave. And we view the world through our specific rule book. And like, we're pretty narcissistic as humans. <laughs> we kind of tend to assume that most people kind of experience the world similarly to us. And we also tend to assume that people view the world similarly to us. So what we often forget is that we have this rule book, how people should behave, how feedback should be given, how much we should talk in a meeting, what it looks like to be respectful, all of that. And your coworkers, your supervisor, the people in your life have their own rule book. Your rule books are usually not the same. And we make an assumption that they're similar. So when we see people, quote, breaking our rule book, we put all kinds of intentions on them doing so. Because we assume if you and I have the same rule book for what it looks like to be respectful and you behave a certain way, you are being disrespectful and you must know you're being disrespectful or you must be um, someone who wants to be disrespectful. So let me kind of put this into context to help your brain understand it a little bit better. So let's take a situation that can be pretty emotional, like you getting what you perceive as critical feedback from your boss. So your boss frequently tells you, hey, like these numbers need to be better or um, there were too many mistakes in your email or I want you to do X, Y, and Z for the presentation. And your rule book says, yo, like people shouldn't give so much critical feedback. It's disheartening and demotivating for employees. For every piece of critical feedback, you should be providing positive feedback and recognizing how hard I work. Okay? So that's your rule book. And it makes total logical sense to you. So when your boss approaches you and says, you know, hey, here's the three things that I need you to work on, your brain is going to interpret it through your rule book and you're going to be like, there's a problem. My boss is disrespectful. She doesn't appreciate my work. She doesn't know how to give feedback. Your boss has a different rule book. And let's assume in this circumstance that your boss believes um, the best way to mentor and serve the employees that work under them is to give honest and direct feedback. So I like th this main point that different people operate from, from different uh, rule books. That's helpful for understanding Putin. It's uh, helpful for understanding coworkers and bosses. The land, the rest of it just doesn't matter. Air power is all great and everything, but it doesn't hold territory. And air power by itself is not going to stop an army. Now, is there anyone that looks like they're going to invade Russia now? Of course not. But that's not the point. From the Russian point of view, if they don't do this now, they will not have the demographic strength to resist a future mm -hmm. invasion. And something that has happened in the last three weeks that I've got to admit has got me a little freaked out. Students of history, especially military history, always look to the example of the Nazi rise in 1936 and how from 1936 to 1939, three years, the Germans went from a destitute, depression-riddled Weimar Republic mm -hmm. to the Nazi war machine. The capacity of a modern industrialized country, especially the modern industrialized countries that Russia is concerned about, to reinvent themselves overnight is huge. And on the third day of the Ukraine war, Chancellor Schultz, who is a pacifist and a socialist, announced that within two years the Germans were going to double their defense spending. 
And, you know, that's great for the point of containing Russia. But as a student of history, I had to take a step back there for a second because it felt really familiar and not at all comfortable. Let's hope that Germany's democracy survives this. We can talk about that too. But, <clears throat> you know, historically speaking, the pressures that a place like Germany are under are huge. And when something snaps, it all snaps. So the Russians are looking at the Western periphery here, and they realize that this is their last chance. If they don't do it now, it's not going to be done. And it appears that the Germans still have the capacity to reinvent themselves. Or they look south to the southwest, and they see a Turkey that is one of the healthiest demographies in the world, one of the largest industrial economies in the world, that is bit by bit extending their influence throughout the broader region. Well, part of that broader region includes Crimea. So from the Russian point of view, history is nowhere near over. We were just on a bit of a pause for a while. Okay, so you took me by surprise there with Germany. I do want to talk about that. I thought you were going to take it to Russia as an analog of interwar Germany with the sanctions causing a breeding source of resentment and a rapid transformation, rapid in relative terms, from a country that, let's say, the population would have been largely against this kind of war to seeing itself as a victim and rising up eventually and causing havoc on the international stage. Okay, that's uh, Peter Zion speaking on the Hidden Forces podcast about the battle for Ukraine and prospects for World War III. That's it for me for tonight. Take care. Bye-bye.